0: Welcome, everybody, to episode 51 of the Anagram Journey podcast with Suzanne Stabile. Today's show is really cool. It's not uh, so much a podcast as it is a recording of our parenting discussion panel that was recorded on February 28th in Austin, Texas. On the panel is Suzanne and her husband, Joe, Elizabeth and Nathaniel Chapin, uh, Anagram 4 and 5. Luke and Lindsay Norsworthy, an Enneagram 7 and a 1. Aaron and Jamie Ivy, a 3 and a 6. And my man Todd Dugaw, an anagram 8. Proceeds from this event went to support the Children's Advocacy Centers of Texas and the Methodist Children's Home in Costa Rica. You can find links for both of them at theenneagramjourney.org if you are interested and able to show some support as well one quick warning we had a small technical difficulty with the audio for the first five minutes and 40 seconds of part one but from that point on it's golden we really hope that you enjoy this episode as well as part two uh, in episode 52. Thanks. Thank
1: you all for coming. When I started to hear Jedi and Wizard and all that, folks have a hard time going to be mother on stage. So he calls me the author or the speaker or the teacher. So that's what you know, I'm all good with Jedi and Wizard and all that. All right, so he gave me uh, two minutes with an extra 90 seconds. I'm going to see what I can do. There are three centers of intelligence, and they are thinking, feeling, and doing. And it's interesting that there are more than three, but if you think about life, you will be mindful that you respond to all stimulus with either what do I think, what do I feel, or what am I going to do first. Then you may use the other two, but you start with one of those consistently all the time. In enneagram reality, there are three triads. Two, three, and four are in the feeling triad, and they respond to life first with what do I feel. Five, six, seven are in the thinking triad, and they respond first with, what do I think? Eight, nine, and one are in the doing triad, and they respond first with, what am I going to do? About between the ages of eight and eleven, one of the three just doesn't work very well for you anymore. (laughs) So you stop using it. And you spend the rest of life doing life primarily... Relying heavily on two of the three centers of intelligence, which is one of the reasons that you're tired a lot of time. It's also one of the reasons that you mess up a lot, you know, all that stuff. So, when that one center wasn't working for you, it retreated. So, it's kind of back here, and it's not... um, it's not out in the world, so it's not being harmed like your other two. It's not getting pushed back like your other two centers. It's just waiting. And when you go get it, because you're talked to, and you begin to bring it up as the language that we would use, when you begin to do that, then it's the purest part of you, but it's also the least mature part of you. So you have to learn to use it. So what that means is that we are either thinking, feeling, or doing dominant, and we are either thinking, feeling, or doing oppressed, and the one in the middle supports the dominant. <coughs> Boom. <it>. Thank you. Thank
0: <laughs> you. Uh, Alright, real quick, also, as you can see, she's sitting in the second chair as our Enneagram 2 up here. <laughs> Lindsey Norsworthy, who was married into the 7 down there, is our 1. We've got Erin Ivy. And then we've got Elizabeth Chapin and Nathaniel Chapin, four and five, Jamie Act, six, Luke Morrisworthy, seven, Tzaddek Daw, eight, and my dad, the Reverend, is our nine tonight. So, that's Giuseppe, you
1: guys. That's it, my dear, that guy, I would love it. I I start every workshop that I do, whether he's here or not,
0: but he's he's just the best human being. I'll stop. That's my speech. All right, so the first question for the panel is uh, what is the greatest aha moment? What is one of the first times you (coughs) realized kind of how the anger was playing out in your parenting or relationship with a child Uh, and kind of tell the story and give some background around it? And anyone, jump on in.
2: I'm going to jump in. Um, I've (laughs) got... misunderstood the question I'm just gonna go with what I have and it's that um, I was raised by a mom who's a seven and dad who's a nine and um and I'm a four and one of the things I realized when I started studying the Ingram with Sudan was that um, my dad always merged with my mom and so the the energy of our house was um, her and they I think they had a real um, ethos that it was important to be united in all ways and to come across as like this marital front, this kind of tower that was unified and that that was what you're supposed to do, right? And I realized that for me as a four, that felt very um, scary. And, um, and I don't even really think it has to be number specific, and so my big takeaway was what I said to the name my husband, or father is, I don't ever want to 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 put that. I mean, not put it, but I don't, I want there always to be space for our children to come um, see our different opinions. Um, or I, I made him swear to me that anytime I transgress, which I'm as parents, I'm the one that's going to transgress. As a four, I'm going to be the one that's. Emotionally volatile. I'm going to be the one that, when when we when I get upset at a kid, I I blow up too much, and so I made him promise me that he would call me out on it in front of the children, and um, also uh, I think I really think there's a way to be respectful of each other as parents while maintaining your own emotional and mental ideas about how you want to parent. And I think it, it's, it's very, um, it gives a child a great deal of feelings of safety to know that their parents are, are humans with different ways of parenting who disagree sometimes. And I think that can be done without undermining each other. I mean, yeah. I, and I don't think, I don't believe in um, answer shopping. Like I don't think, Like We really try to not do that, but I I think it's really helpful to maintain our separate um, ways of going about things with the kids and that they see that and that they see us disagree with each other and resolve it uh, healthfully, hopefully, in front of them so that when they uh, have relationships as older people that they are not afraid of conflict, and they're not afraid of, when your parents are a tower, you don't even know what conflict in a marriage looks like. It hasn't been modeled, so the minute you have it as an adult, it terrifies you. So I think it also gives a child the ability to see, like, oh, a healthy, you know, a normal marriage goes through that, and oh, look, it got resolved right in front of me, and everything's okay.
3: I think I saw a couple of quizzical looks on the term answer shopping, maybe, I don't know. Kids are incredibly opportunistic, right? And if the parents aren't presenting this facade, um, they're going to figure out how to get in between the parents and get the answer they want. So that's, you know, that's the challenge. It's tricky, it's tricky, and there's not a good answer to that. You just have to be, you know, try to be disciplined. I'll go for
4: a minute. I, I um, First of all, I want you all to know that I've known the Enneagram for a long time because I live with the Jedi. <laughs> and I get daily tutoring in my number. <laughs> but I think Joel asked about one of the times when I really recognized how my number was in play, in effect, with our children and children many years ago at least 15 years ago uh, our oldest daughter was coming home from college with her then boyfriend now husband and uh, they had had exams the night before and they were coming home for our second daughter's graduation from high school and having stayed up late at night studying they were driving home and he unfortunately fell asleep while they were driving and they crashed the car his truck And she was thrown through the rear window of the pickup truck and rolled in the gravel and all those kinds of things. When you get that kind of a message from the state trooper of Arkansas, uh, you have just a little bit of information. All he basically told us was that she was still alive. And we immediately made arrangements to, I immediately made arrangements to see to it that our other children were cared for, that we would get in the car, we would get packed up, we would drive to the hospital in Texarkana as fast as we possibly could. And I remember just dealing with all of those things and not allowing myself to be affected by life, which I think is one of the difficulties with nines. Not allowing myself to be affected in the moment by what was going on and what was happening uh, to our daughter in that particular moment. We got to the hospital. We did all the things we did in Arkansas. I came home to go to our second daughter's graduation. Trying still just to take care of all the issues that needed to be handled as the best of my ability. And I can remember standing in the stadium as I'm watching her come in with all of her classmates to the graduation ceremony. And in that moment, let myself be affected by life. In that moment I just broke down crying while in the stands, allowing myself finally to get in touch with the feelings that I had about having a daughter who'd been in an automobile accident and having a graduation ceremony right there, and having handled the issues and the business of of life. And I, I find that was one of the first times I really recognized myself in my number in response to the way I dealt with each one of my children. And then from that point have learned to be ever so cautious to allow myself to be present to the moment when I'm dealing with any one of my children and what their life situation meant for them in this particular moment or that particular moment.
0: While someone's, all right, Aaron's about to jump up real fast, let me just say. First thing to people who have babies, and why not? Don't even worry about it. Let, you know, it's a parenting workshop, so children are crying, that's what's happening. Secondly, I was told that myself, we all need to follow the Reverend's example with the microphone and right up in there. Uh, and then it finally, comes also from experience.
5: Yeah.
0: you want me to preach? No, no, you're, you're good. <laughs> and then finally also, apparently, there's been a few questions uh, about the Twitter hashtag. It's the letters LTM Parent Singular. So we get, questions are coming in, but with crazy hashtags. All right, Aaron, go. Sorry.
6: Yeah, okay, so I feel like I've had many aha moments um, with parenting and understanding a little bit more of the way that I'm wired. I'm also a little bit of a late bloomer to Enneagram. I wish that I would have known more about it. It would have been a lot more helpful, I think, as a, as a parent. A um, little bit of background about me and Jamie. We have four kids. Um Three of our kids came to our family through adoption, and two of those three kids uh, have experienced a lot of trauma in their life before they came to our family. And so a lot of aha moments for me revolve around parenting kids with trauma. Um, you know, as a as an Enneagram 3, one of the things that drives me is um, getting things done, things accomplished, succeeding, um, having... You know, things presented that look well and look great and look awesome. A lot of that comes from the, the way I grew up. I grew up in a pastor's home. So a lot of our uh, life was very public. And um, it was, you know, looking back on it, it was probably a very unhealthy kind of pastor's home because so much of our life was based on what you have to offer for other people and what kind of facade you might have. And so the kind of home I grew up in was the better you look externally the better you probably are as an individual. And so I kind of learned just to have this really great external facade, um, but most of the time it was pretty empty on the inside. So kind of wrestling through that, dealing with that in my own life, the aha moments for me have been, man, I don't want to parent my kids out of my um, unhealthy threeness. And um, especially with kids that have dealt with trauma, I think early on I tended to lead as a parent of having these super high expectations of them and for them without the grace and the mercy and kindness of walking through some of the trauma stuff with them. It was the aha moment of, I need to be a great parent, and I'm wired as a three, and I need to use the healthy parts of the three, but the unhealthy parts, I, I don't want to parent them out of that. I don't want to parent them with the expectation for them to look like they have it all together or the expectation for them to act like they have it all together, but to parent them in a way where hey, it's okay to be busted and broken right now. You don't need to be perfect on the outside. Let's deal with kind of the stuff on the inside. That was super helpful for me and something I'm still learning as a as a three, how to parent that way.
7: I can go next. Um, I'm Lindsay, and I'm married to Luke down there, and I'm the one. And... I'm kind of like you. I feel like I've had so many aha moments in parenting since I've learned the Enneagram, and um, just realizing how I was parenting out of my unhealthiness as a one, and um, that's just been so life-changing for me and so helpful to see that and just to know myself better and realize the behaviors that I was doing, just why I'm doing that, and being able to keep that in check. And we have three little girls, and I think when we had our last daughter, I thought, this is just awesome. I have three cute little girls, three mini-me's, and I think a tendency for a one is just I run a tight ship, and I like all my little ducklings in a row, and this is how we behave, and this is what we do, and this is how we act, and this is just it. And I'm just kind of strict by nature, and I love them to all wear the same dresses and have bows and... And that's just how we, how I run things. And I started to realize through my work with the Enneagram that they aren't all mini-me's, and they're all unique, and they're different. And um, I-, I can't love them well without recognizing their differences and what makes them work and how they f- receive love and how they um, give love and just all of that. And so it was just mind-blowing me to realize that. I just thought kind of the whole idea of realizing everybody's different and being able to have compassion for people's differences. And so for me, just being able to keep in check my my critical voice and my my need to control things and to try to um, not let those voices spew out onto my kids and just try to um, appreciate the healthy part of my oneness that gives them boundaries and makes them feel safe and... um, um, helps them to be respectful and kind and do the right thing, but not let it go too far to where I'm unhealthy and controlling every aspect and making them all the same. Um, So that's been, for me, really super helpful as a parent, and I feel like um, I can be more successful in in loving them well.
0: Jamie, I know you're about to say something. I just want to jump in real fast. Something that keeps coming up that I think probably... We've all done. The first time I heard it was with Todd. He'll talk here in a little bit. But with when he was on the podcast, talking about when he had a son. And his son looked just like him. And he said, oh, he's going to be just like me. And you're like, I've got three little mini-me's. And I was I was the same way. And I I don't know any parent who doesn't think, I'm just going to have a little duplicate of me. And then it, man, it never happens that way. I, I might have gotten lucky with one. But uh, I just think... If anyone wants to talk to it, that that, for me, I think that's the first aha moment of, oh my gosh, like you said, those, you're, you're not three of me and you're not just like me and so on. And then it blooms from there. So.
8: Um, hi, I'm Jamie and I am a six. I'm married to Aaron, who's a three. And like you said, we have four kids. And I think when I look back, I, I wouldn't necessarily call this an aha moment, but I can look back on parenting situations in the past and go, well, this is why I felt this way because of my tendency to operate, you know, because I'm a six. I remember one particular example. Um, you know, we have three teenage boys and I remember one time, the, you know, one time we found something inappropriate on a kid's phone. And um, it happens, like, it's, it's going to happen to everybody. And I remember thinking... My life is over, and his life is over, and he is now addicted to pornography for the rest of his life. <laughs> I declared we had an addict in our house, and there was absolutely no hope for anyone ever again. And, um, you know, Aaron very gently was like, you're, you're freaking out here. Like, calm down. But I look back, and I see where my first tendency sometimes with parenting my kids or them making a bad choice or me making a bad parenting choices is this going to haunt us forever or are my kids going to forgive me for this and i think that i see that in myself of maybe not trusting some of my parenting decisions as well and acknowledging that now helps me know that i can trust myself a little bit more with parenting so I think just learning about why I feel the way I do when I parent sometimes has helped me understand but it's also helped me kind of figure out I don't want to stay here I want to be a better version of myself and so it's given me a little bit more language to trying to be a better parent not a perfect parent but a better parent.
5: Hi um I'm an eight on the Enneagram so I was a uh, I thought I was going to have a Todd 2.1, you know, the next version of me as a kid, and it didn't work out. By the time my son was two, he's a nine. So we're very opposite, and my aggressive number is doing, my aggressive part is doing, and his repressive part is doing. So the more I pushed him, the less he did, the more he moved away from that. And so that was apparent when he was like two years old when I'm having a conversation with him and I'm trying to, I'm intense as an individual, as a parent, I'm even more intense. I'm, I've done all sorts of things to incentivize my son to do things that I thought was good. Uh, that was shocking to his mother. Uh, uh, and I, I'll tell you those things too. Um, but looking at my son with the intensity I had to try to convince him of something and watching his face, his reaction, to my approach was, was so confusing for me in one respect and shocking that it absolutely failed. I was absolutely failing with him that the harder I pushed to get him to do something, the less he was doing, because he was so uh, accommodating as a nine. He was so accommodating to try to f- keep the peace and figure out what I wanted from him And what I wanted from him was him to be an individual at two. I'm an eight. At two, that's old enough. I was an individual at two. So I thought he would do that. And to watch his response to that and and the total failure of that was I actually went to uh, brought him to a psychologist at the age of four and told him before he went, this is not about you. I want you to tell this this person everything that they ask, as clear and honest as you can, so they can tell me how to be a better dad. I did that when he was when he was uh, four, when he was ten, and when he was eighteen. Because as a as a dad, that's, that has a very dominant energy. That's his repressed energy. Those are like polar opposite. So for me to Go with my instinct and my first thought was rarely the right way to go. Uh, And I dearly love my son. I, I, you know, and I've had moments that have been great. I mean, the thing I did that incentivizing, you know, when he was in sports, he was a good athlete. He was an all-state athlete. And as a kid, he would not be aggressive when he played sports, which drove me crazy. It really did. I mean, I was a little kid hitting guys that were linemen. I, my first concussion, I was four. I mean, you're not, you know, so I'm, I'm like, go at it 120%. And he's the kind of kid that's trying to gather up teammates. So he's playing soccer, and he's running down the field, and he's kicking the ball. And he waits for the other player to catch up to him so they can run down the field together. And I'm losing my mind, and he's four. So I didn't know how to, how to bridge this gap. I actually paid him to be, to, to incentivize him to be more active in games, and he, it worked. And, and, and the one time it worked is I, I'm on the side, I'm, I'm literally four feet from him on the sideline, and like, I will give you this much if you get that ball and you score. And he did it, and, and he did it because he was tired of me telling him every time he came to the sideline, I'm going to be in your ear. Uh, and he did it, and he had a little bit of fun, and by the end of the game, I owed him a dollar and 75 cents, and he and had A cheapskate. Yeah. Well, he was a... It worked for him. Uh, and, and, uh, and that was the way we created a connection for me, that we started to create connections over activities and act, things like that. And he played sports, you know, until he finished high school. Uh, I didn't have to pay him for more than two games, so it worked out really well for me. Uh, but you know, it was a struggle, you know, that I really had to get other people to to explain my own kid to me, and I did it because I, I had I really could not figure it out at all, um, and. Uh, you know, he's a he's a he's as a nine. He has such a huge heart, and as an eight, I could just step right on top of that and not even know it. And that's what I was seeing when he was a kid. I was like, I can't do this. I mean, what in my mind, what I thought is, I'm going to make you capable and independent and strong and all these things. And I became the bully in his life. And I thought, wow, that, I, I, we can't do this. I mean, I could, but I couldn't. You know, and so. I Had to figure that out, and, and I didn't have the anagram back then. I really didn't. It was it was um, eight ten years later before I heard of the anagram. Um, so knowing it really helped me. And I thought I'm I'm a so person I am. I'm a manager. I'm going to figure it out. I'm going to you know and all that. What I learned in the process that I had to work on me more and, and working more on my emotional side. And that made it easier to have a conversation with him. That, that as a junior in high school, he had scholarships coming. And he wasn't pursuing because at, at the nine, he's withdrawing. If he does not want to do anything, he's stubborn. He won't do it. He's stubborn. He'll move away from it. And that's when I know that, that he's trying to tell me something. So I'm looking for the subtle clue. So we had, we had a meal, and I was like, why, why won't you do this? And he's like, I said, honestly, just tell me honestly. He's like, I don't want to play sports in college. I was like, OK, that's cool. Now, as an aide, if you're lazy, I don't like laziness. And he wasn't a lazy kid. But I could lay that on top of him, the way I see the world. is, you're not doing anything, that makes you lazy. So we had to figure out the little nuances of, of who he is, so I could, I could be there for him. So
9: yeah, I think that's my experience, too. The, uh, so mine's Luke. I, I'm Lindsey's husband. And uh, I've been uh, working with the Enneagram for six or, six or seven years. And uh, the thing that the Enneagram did for me is it made space for people being different. And uh, my wife and I, I'm a seven. She's a one. We're different people. Uh, she's a perfectionist, which works out so well in so many areas. Uh, she's a neonatal ICU nurse, works out well being a perfectionist there. Uh, obviously, when she picked out a husband, worked out <laughs> well there as well. Um, and with our... I'm a seven, I told you. Um, should have warned. Uh, but but with, my, with our daughters, I, I, I see that they're, they're different. And they're too young to really say, this is what your number is, obviously. But I know there's different energy with them. And I see that for, for one of them, uh, to tell them, oh, you're wonderful, uh, you're perfect, you're, you're just exactly right, just as you are, doesn't mean as much. And, and the work which she needs to learn how to do is... To sit with their feelings and to say, "I feel sad, I feel upset," and I have another daughter who needs to hear in substantially more uh, repetitive ways uh, messaging that critiques the voice that's always criticizing her in her head. And for me, the enneagram has given me language to create that space for: "This is who you are. This is how God made you. Th- this is the set of glasses that you wear to filter the world through." and Just having that understanding that these are different lenses that everyone's looking at through prevents me from doing what I would naturally want to do is to want to elevate the strengths that I have and say, well, this is a sign of my superiority. And if you're mature, this is how you see the world. And realizing this is just one of many ways to experience the world and no longer superimposing my experience on my daughter's experience.
0: All right. Mom, your last one. And then after you Hello. share, then I'm going to fire some
3: questions at you. you
0: oh, I thought you had chimed in on... Uh, on so, sorry. i so I can be quiet if you, you want you me to be quiet. The, uh, I, yeah.
3: um, so I'm a five. Um, I'm in the withdrawing stance. Uh, <laughs> That's <okay>. very assertive. <laughs> um, and... Uh, I, the Enneagram's been very, I mean, I've come to it a little more recently than Elizabeth. Elizabeth has been steeped in it a long time, and she brought me along gradually, and then I met Suzanne and, was, um, and jumped in. And, um, and so looking back at some of my behaviors, um, it's been interesting to kind of see them through the lens of the Enneagram, which has been very helpful in kind of understanding them better and um, being more conscious of, of how I behave in in real time so I remember when our daughter was born um and it it was like just knocked me on my ass I mean I I just um I hadn't it was overwhelming there were messy emotions um there was nowhere to hide there was nowhere to go kind of recharge my energy there's nowhere to go be by myself I mean we were in this small apartment um um you know, I think I had postpartum depression, maybe. <laughs> um, and I remember one night um, Elizabeth's brother and wife were visiting, and um, I said, oh, "I'll walk you back to your hotel." And and we walked them down the street and saw them to their door. They were staying in a motel around the corner. And I'm walking home, and um, I'm walking by the Continental Club. I don't know if you all know that place on South Congress, and I think Dale Watson was playing. And I thought, "Oh, perfect." I'm just going to pop in here by myself, and have a beer, and listen to some music. And, and you know, I go to seven in stress, so I think that was probably very seven of me to do that, at that moment. And so I was just so happy, I was sitting there listening to Dale Watson, and having sipping on my long neck, and all by myself in the middle of the crowd, you know, fives are really good at disappearing. And and then I feel this bump, and I look over, and it's my friend Kevin, I was like, what? How, how'd you know? Yeah, but this is great, you're here too, can I get you a beer? And he goes, no, actually, Elizabeth sent me to look for you. <laughs> so I was immediately reframing, right, as myself, so, you know, I got dragged back home and we, we had a conversation about that. You don't remember that, but, I, uh, um, and, and so, um, you know, that, I think in retrospect, that was my way of withdrawing and trying to conserve energy. And then as we've gone, you know, as our children have grown up, um, you know, my tendency, particularly with our son who can be, um, we, he can be very conflictual and he's very emotion forward and it's sudden and it's surprising and um, my tendency was to withdraw, like, you know, that's how, that's the best way to let a conflict blow over, is take a step back, you know, everybody settle down. And, and I realized it was, um, it was terrifying to him. He thought I was abandoning him. And I had to make myself stop, do- stop doing that. Um, and I had to meet him where he was and just be okay with it. And so that's, that's been a lot of work for me to do that.
1: Um, the, the story I think that I want to talk about has to do with when our youngest, who's a four, um, was really struggling in school with friends and um, grades and all the things that you can struggle with as a male four in Texas in maybe the fifth grade or sixth grade. And as a two on the Enneagram, I uh, said to him one day when I picked him up from school, uh, and, and sadly, I had really thought about this. And um, I said to him, you know, Beach, I've been thinking a lot about how much you're struggling. And I I wonder, would it help, do you think, if you could be just a little bit more like other kids? So there's not a worse thing to say to a four. Like, I, I couldn't have spent time creating up the meanest thing I could think of to say... And then that would have been it. It would be like, this is the most inappropriate thing you can probably say. It will damage him for a very long time. So why don't you go with
3: this?
1: (laughs) So I want to talk about the complexity of why we do what we do in our Enneagram number. So you see, as a two, I don't feel my own feelings. I feel other people's feelings. And generally, as twos, we have no idea what we feel. So we are always reacting to what other people feel. So I had been feeling bad for a very long time every time I picked him up from school because I was picking up on his feelings. And it got to a point where it felt to me like a problem that we needed to solve. And so the only solution I came up with was how I would solve the problem as opposed to a meaningful way for him to try to solve the problem. And I, I'm telling you that it's it's one of my worst parenting moments. But I'm telling you that because I think your personality is so big that you very subtly fall into the wrong way of thinking about any other human being, particularly your children. And you, in that moment of thinking about how can I love you the best, how can I be helpful, it's how you would help yourself in that situation and it's actually not helpful to them. Which means this whole thing that we're trying to do and trying to do well requires lots of tools and lots of thought and lots of time and lots of effort and we don't always have that. And I think the best thing we can do when we make a mistake that is that significant is to circle back right away and say, that was just wrong. It was the wrong thing to say, it was wrong for you, It would work well for me, but it wouldn't cost me anything to do that. It would cost you everything, and I'm so sorry. Unfortunately, when that happened, I wasn't... um, I've always been good at apologizing to my children, but I, I, I wasn't good in those days at apologizing until I was caught. So I think this whole thing of being the child and being the parent really has a two-way component where you have to allow your children to uh, reflect back to you what you've said or suggested in a way that you can receive it, that it was really a, n- not a great thing. And it doesn't have anything to do with you as a parent. If if you're working really hard at being healthy yourself and at parenting well, then the worst thing you can do is not be able to admit when you make a mistake. We expect them to, right? So Joe would tell you, and, and I, I don't think we need to talk about this now, but Joe never remembers her, his dad apologizing to him ever. So I would suggest you start early apologizing because when things are hard, you're going to see from your perspective for sure, and you'll have to do some work to see from theirs. I forgive you, Dad. We're good. Uh,
0: uh, one of the things that is really cool with my job is kind of seeing some of the analytics of, uh, of workshops and how certain numbers, how things happen. And so it's interesting that uh, at a workshop, the dependent stance ones, twos, and sixes I will sell all of our repressed thinking stuff, like they clean up at the workshop. But then away from it online, all of our withdrawing stuff sells out online because they do it later. And the same thing has happened with questions that we ask people to feed in is mostly the withdrawing stance, the higher percentage of the three uh, contributed questions. So I'm gonna run with that. And uh, you talked about it a little bit, Nathaniel, already. But uh, some of the questions I'm gonna read these kind of verbatim. How do I convey that my need to be alone is about me and not about them uh another number and these are from four fives and nines not i didn't write down their number i didn't want i want you all to take that uh no one i already have i already feel like i'm behind the eight ball i never have enough energy for my family and i'm afraid that my children will take my personality personally so uh, anything you can say to that would be great
2: I I was thinking about that on the way over and I think in the withdrawing stance um, fives and nines are not um, they uh, relationally retreat and are comfortable with that and fours do not do that so I have um, unlimited energy for relationships, I have too much energy for relationships so I, in my personal experience, have no knowledge of that being a problem for my kids, I mean, I have the opposite problem. They have the opposite problem.
0: The question that stood out to me, and so, I did write this down from a four was nine. the roller coaster. They were like, for me with the feelings, it was as oh. an adult four, it's a roller coaster, and yeah. them as a child, just uh, being a child, it's a roller coaster, yes. and that they're all on and that it was crazy. Yeah. And so she was asking for or he for help yeah. with that. So I think that's what you're talking to. Yeah, yeah.
2: God help them. I don't know. I <laughs> but, so
0: I, I, I would say to and for parents, the record, I don't want to cut you off go on but when the God help you I don't know I think that's when
3: people are throwing it to to you just throwing it out there oh. for, for ideas but go ahead I, I, I would just say to, withdra- to parents who are in the withdrawing stance I mean don't beat yourself up I mean my god every every number it doesn't matter what number you are you're going to traumatize your kids in some way right <laughs> so so we don't have a, um, a you know, a, a monopoly on that and I would say, e- e- you know, each number has a way of trying to control the world around him or her and that's probably the way in which you're most likely to traumatize your kid you know, so I withdraw, right? and so my son feels abandoned or, you know, I, 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 I need to work on being more vulnerable and apologizing more and being uh, more emotionally available, you know, so um, but a very aggressive number, um, you know, can make a kid feel bullied and no room to be themselves. So, you know, that, that's just my thought on it, Joe. Joel.
1: You can talk, Joe, before I do.
4: Um, I think nines, as, as those of you who are nines know, that we have just the least amount of energy of anybody else on the Enneagram. <laughs> because we are constantly protecting ourselves from any conflict that would come in from the outside. And, anything that we might say on the inside that would cause conflict. So um, part of it for me, I think, in terms of our kids was trying to balance my need for my own time and my own space with learning to give them uh, uninterrupted time or affection when the time was to be with them so that there was some understanding of of my need to um, step back a little bit or or be uh, a little more withdrawing at different times in my life. But I think also because, and maybe this was true with you, Elizabeth, I don't know, or Nathaniel, was because I lived with someone who was so relational, Suzanne being so relational with the kids my tendency as a nine is to merge. So I would frequently merge with her to be present to what was going on with the kids or what was happening in their life. So they probably didn't, and Joel, you'd have to answer this, they didn't feel that withdrawing on my part in the same way because I was merging with my partner, my love, who was very relational.
1: Your partner and your love would like to say <laughs> that sometimes I think you were merging and I think sometimes it was, let. I'll just let her handle it.
4: Oh, that's definitely true, particularly yeah. if, it came, if it came to uh, discipline. Yeah. Want
3: <laughs> to do rock, paper, scissors right now? See who's going to yeah. go? You know, I, I will say that's, that's an area where Elizabeth and I, who are both withdrawing, have had trouble holding the line, yeah. Because I don't have the energy; it's too exhausting, and I don't know what's your excuse.
2: I, I, <laughs> I, I, took, I don't know what my excuse is, but I th- I think being two withdrawing parents, mm-hmm. that the hardest thing for us has been to um, be consistent with that drawing of the line. So we'll draw the line and then we'll peter out, and you know, and um. I mean, our kids even make fun of us over it. So it's really not good. Yeah. It's not good. (laughs) I was always
4: happy to let you do it, Suze. Because then I didn't have to expend the energy, and I felt relationally you did it better than I did anyway. So it worked out really pretty good.
1: It was very smooth. Smooth. (laughs) (laughs) Um, here's what I would like to say to all three of you, and all of you who are fours, fives, and nines. You get to have your space, but we tend collectively to consider a lack of boundaries being around people who are too much. So when people come on too much, too frequently, too often, we say they don't have very good boundaries. But when people withdraw too far, too often, they don't have very good boundaries either because they can't boundary themselves in their withdrawing and then reconnect when it's time to reconnect and that's an equally serious boundary issue. So, you get to have some time. You get to stop off and have a beer, perhaps. Not with a newborn, but maybe. (laughs) But, but, you don't get to stop off and have a long neck and enjoy some music. You know, there are mothers in here who are sleep-deprived who just don't like you now. (laughs) You don't get to stop off, have a long neck, and enjoy some music without calling and saying, I'm here, and here's the boundary I've put on my time alone, and I'll be home in 27 minutes. (laughs) Or whatever that is. So it's about boundarying from the side that it doesn't appear there needs to be a boundary. Because
2: it's too little, not too much. Are there, is there such a thing as a four that's over-boundaried? Like the, like, I mean, I feel like I'm just boundary-less, and I schmooze all over everybody. So is there such a thing as a very uh, uh, relationally withdrawing four? Is, is there such a thing?
1: There is such a thing, and you're not it. <laughs> That exists and it doesn't, we've known each other for a long time. It does not exist in you. But withdrawing fours are also frequently self-indulgent fours in that they withdraw and they're inconsolable. So those of you who are raising children who might be or probably could be fours, that's what they do. They withdraw and you have to go get them. And then you have to entice them to come back and encourage them to come back because their power is in being gone instead of in being present. So one of the things you can always think about in parenting is where's the power? And if you always have it and you're proud of yourself for that, you're wrong. It's just a matter of knowing where it is. It's not a matter of you always having it.
3: I would say parenting is a great exercise in loss of power.
1: Yes. Yeah. And control and, yeah, all that.
0: Can we talk about it from the other direction? So that's the withdrawing stance. And I wouldn't, I want you to correct all the bad language I'm saying here. But if three sevens and eights are not withdrawing and moving about how, if that was bridging the gap for four fives and nines, Three sevens and eights, if you can talk to uh, putting yourself on them instead of withdrawing, does that make sense? And if you can talk to, just like you did there, the tools of how to pull back on that and how to share the power. Because I would think, especially with three sevens and eights being aggressive, uh, yeah, I did, um, that sharing the power seems to me that it would be harder. Them, I know. For I know, for me as a seven, I feel like I I need to have the power. You're five. You're a five year old, and you know, so there's that. So I agree. I'm not pushing back, but talks to
1: that. Aaron, I think you have to start because you did talk about that a little bit when you said I'm trying not to put this threeness on my kid.
6: For sure. I, I, I I'm driven by principle also, so there's kind of an ideal that I think and we should all live by, I have a principle for you. I think you should live by everybody. I have a principle and idea for how you should operate and think and, um, and come across a little bit aggressive in that uh, with parenting for sure. Um, and it's been helpful to kind of know that about myself and then to put some boundaries in place to protect myself from having those expectations on my kids and then to protect them from having this dad that would be overbearing or have these unrealistic expectations for them to meet. Um, also, uh, I mean, parenting is just incredibly hard. I, it's one of the hardest things that I've ever done in my entire life. It's just really difficult, and it's been helpful just to go, okay, God gave me these kids to be the father to. Out of all of, out of the entire globe, every human being on the planet, he picked me for whatever reason to be a father to these four children that's messed up in my mind surely there should have been somebody better but he chose me to do it and so I want to be able to tame some of my aggression and and be a good steward of it at the same time so what I mean by that is like there are moments where it will be helpful for me to be a little bit more pushing um, for, for especially for like you know my sons I really want to push them to be good stewards uh, in their life and want push them to have good character and push them to to work hard and to look out for people and to, to do those kind of good things. But then I also want to have enough kind of tameness in that to sit back sometimes and listen to them and like have an actual ear that goes, Hey, where are you at right now? What are you thinking about the world? What's your perspective on the world? What's your ideal for what you imagine, you know, living in dripping Springs, Texas, how do you imagine the world being great and learning from them has been a really good posture, I think, for me to have, to know that I wished I would have had a dad or a mom that leaned into me and said, hey, what's in your brain? What are you imagining for your school to look like? What do you want? Um, Theater, what the vibe and the culture of theater right now in the seventh grade, what do you want it to be like? Um, To kind of bridge the gap, to tame my aggression, but then also know when to push and when not to. And that's really hard. Thank you, you're right, so hard. So as an um,
5: aggressive number, I, I look for intensity and connection. And so I, I, was, I, I thought of something that, that y'all were talking. When my son was, we uh, went jet skiing whenever he was um, a year and a half old. And I'm having a blast. And there's another person. I am so to...
1: thankful that he's 19.
5: Yeah. 20. <laughs> may... Because
1: we would have to report you.
5: I know. That's why I, I think I think I'm okay jet now. Um, so we're jet skiing, and this is a pretty fast jet ski. It must be doing fifty or sixty. He's in the front of me because I'm making sure he's okay. And yeah, because that life. makes him safe. Yeah. So we're going, and another person on jet ski, and they turn around and they look, and they're like, their face is like, "Are you okay?" And They're looking at my son, and I turn him around, and he is in sheer terror. Because he has gone faster than he's ever gone in his life. Now, when I was a kid, you could put me on the back of a motorcycle. You could put me on the hood of your car. Let's go. So I'm thinking, this is great. I'm having a great time. And and I don't know if he's ever been that scared in his entire life since. Um, So
0: I can talk to the same. I can give a lot of examples, similar examples. Are you feeling bad for me? I do and I feel bad for, for our son I'm like all the things that I loved to do When I was little yeah. I now do to him And he cries <laughs> and, and, and then my and then, I'm, and then my feelings are hurt Because <laughs> yeah. I'm throwing him at the, as high as I can in the air yeah. Because what a thrill that is yeah, that. And he's terrified So I well, I,
9: get I personally feel better about my parenting now So thank you <laughs> Thank you um, I, I think we all like superimpose our vision of you know what life is supposed to be onto our kids and so as a seven my tendency is to reframe. and so one of my daughters is upset about something and within an instant I can see a silver lining in it and I can turn around and go well this is positive you shouldn't be so upset about it and the Enneagrams told me don't do that like just stop let them be upset don't don't use my aggressiveness as to reframe and uh I heard someone whose dad was a pastor say she used to tell her dad stop casting a vision for my life okay I don't need you to cast a vision for my life and I I do that naturally and so I want to just go withdraw from that and and let them have space to be who they are and not reframe for them and to let them be where they need to be
1: so um here's what I want to say right now um I don't think that I know of another thing other than the Enneagram that lets you say the things that we're saying to you about the mistakes that we've made parenting without us feeling like we are really no good, horrible, terrible human beings and without you thinking that about us. And it all has to do with the fact that we live life based on how we see. So Todd's talking about how he saw life as a child. Joel's talking about the same thing. We're all talking about a a lack of incorporation of the reality that other people do not see the way we see. And so everything that's been shared that I have heard was, we're doing this because it'll be fun. We're doing this because it'll be the best. We're offering this because it's how you can take care of yourself. And it's wrong, 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 wrong. Because of the difference in how we see, but it's not wrong in terms of who we are as human beings. We carefully chose this group of people because everybody up here is really committed to being a good parent. And good parenting doesn't, like, I'm doing a new thing now. For a while I was just moving my book in the bookstore, you know, to the bestsellers thing. But I'm I'm taking a break from that right now. I'm I'm giving it up for Lent and then I'm going to go back to it. But I... (laughs) <clears throat> but what I am finding myself doing Is getting mad every time I see A a, a, mag, a good parenting magazine cover It's like what what in the world is good parenting And if it's good parenting In our experience for Joel As a 7 it would not have been good parenting For BJ as a 4 or Jenny as a 9 Or Joey as an 8 So I think we have to let go of the idea That there's such a thing as good parenting. There's messy parenting that comes from a, a heart that's full and an intent to figure out how to be the best parent we can be. And that that's it. That, that's the best we have to hope for. And so before we keep going, I just want to say thank you to everybody on the stage who did exactly what we thought you would do. You told the truth. And y'all are lucky ducks to get to hear parents do this instead of well. We never really have any trouble with our children, and you know this always works for us. I'm sorry if it doesn't work for you.
0: It's great. We're going to continue with things that don't work and go to the dependent stance. Uh, you talked earlier about uh, putting your tunis on BJ um, with him at school and how that affected you and how you didn't manage that I'm wondering if Jamie and Lindsay can talk to that also as also so the dependent stance one two and six if there's something y'all can share along the same lines where the other numbers are talking about managing their personality that they're putting on everybody else in the family
1: Prom. I mean, homecoming.
8: Homecoming. Did I tell you a story about homecoming? Yeah, yeah. What did I say?
1: (laughs) You essentially said that you had figured out a way to control it for the boys so they wouldn't experience anything negative and everything would work out just fine. I mean, something along those lines. That I didn't want them to go? That you didn't want them to suffer, so you wanted to be sure the girls that they invited would say yes, et cetera. (laughs) Is it all coming back to you now? I mean, I've got lots of things like that, but... (laughs)
0: I think she's the confusion like, is, she's like, that's not something that didn't work.
8: Wait, this is great. Oh, yeah. This is good parenting, what I'm about to tell you. Um, probably, I. nobody wants their kids to suffer. Like, nobody wants their kids to get hurt, right? We would probably all agree with that. Um, but I probably would see myself, even that situation that Suzanne told me, uh, said about me with my kids and... Um, going to homecoming, they're so young, and they're so little, and do I really want this for them, and then texting the parents of who they're going to ask, because I just want to make sure it's okay, but also make sure that they know about this, and that their daughter's probably going to say yes, because I don't want my kid to ask someone, and then her say no, because then we have to deal with that, and,
1: um, I'm sorry to interrupt, darling, but if you'd like a definition of the dependent stance, that's (laughs) it. (laughs) And I'm done. There it
9: is.
8: (laughs) Um, But just trying to keep everybody um, happy and healthy and okay so that we, so that no one's upset and so that everyone is just great in life. Um, and, And I think I, being married to Aaron a three in the aggressive stance, I think I can see that playing out sometimes in parenting as if Aaron is in this unhealthy position with parenting my job then becomes to go behind and make sure they know what he didn't really Fix mean. Fix it.
7: Fix it. Yeah. yeah.
8: Your dad didn't really mean that when he said that. But if you would just do this, he wouldn't do that. Don't you understand? And, you know, so working and that Well, kind that's of- a
0: dependent state. I've i had that talk with her. I remember about, hey, dad did this. You need to do this. And just kind of mediating what's going on around the house. Is that a – I'm not cutting you off. Lindsay's – does that sound no. like a
7: thing? Yeah, I feel I'm very similar in my parenting style. Um, I was trying to think of a good example, but when I first went to kindergarten, it was like, I mean, I was psycho. I had to control every aspect of it and wrote the kindergarten teacher like a three-page letter about her personality and how she feels loved and look out for this and she, you know, please call me or text me anytime you notice the... <laughs> just. I've lost it because I was losing control and she was going into this environment that I wasn't there and I couldn't control every part of it. And it, it was super hard. <laughs> um, and then just hearing from her, I thought I was sending my little precious lamb to the wolves. You know, I thought this was, this is going to be a nightmare. She's going to, anyways, I, hearing her, you know, how much she loves school and how she has friends who are so different than her. And, friends who, who don't believe in Jesus. And, um, I was terrified of that. I thought she has to go to a Christian private school. I need, I need to control everything. I need to make sure we all believe the same thing. Everybody, we're all, all of the parents, um, of all the kids, we're all on the same boat. We're, you know, we're raising our kids the same way. And I realized she's such a good person because she's around all different people and she respects different kinds of people and she doesn't judge them and she's friends with everyone. And that's beautiful. And if I had a Tried to control it as much as I wanted to, I would have squashed all of that, you know. So,
8: I think too, just to give you a little hope, is um, I was like that too with our oldest. Before I was like that, and I was I thought he needed to go to private school. Aaron, neither one of us went to private school; both public school people. But I was like, I cannot send my kid where he I'll throw him to the wolves. This is going to be the worst thing possible. And I got, I mean, we have always done public school, but just to give all you parents a little hope, sometimes you get too tired, you can't keep up with that anymore. So, you know, my first one goes to kindergarten, and I cry, and I can't even believe it. And then by the time it got to my fourth one, I was out of town, and like a friend took her to school. So I just was like, I can't even be, I can't do it anymore. And I let it go.
7: It's exhausting to keep that up, for sure.
0: If you want to hear more on that also, uh, the podcast episode with Christopher and Amanda Phillips and their story of taking their kids to preschool, Right, they're both ones. 100% in line with this. Uh, All right, so one of the questions that was tweeted in. Before you go there, I just
1: want to say, I don't live out of my imagination very much. I'm creative, but I don't live out of my imagination much. But for some reason, I've been managing. I've been imagining that there's a balcony up here, and it's just full of children, and they're all up there thinking, "I want that one." No, I want that one. <laughs> no, no, I'll have that one. And isn't that interesting? Because that's what we all confessed that we were doing when we had them, right? We thought we knew what we were getting. Yeah, fascinating.
0: And in putting, I don't know about how. Uh, other numbers feel about it up here but when it was time for just even now figuring out where our kids go to school I'm like it doesn't matter our kids will handle this they'll be tough they'll they're smart kids and they'll do it and so what is the most logistic school for them to go to and now they